PERC, pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria. Can it decrease unnecessary expensive testing being performed on healthy persons, primarily in response to physicians' fear of medical malpractice? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Jeffrey Klein, Research Director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Klein. Larry, it's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about what a pulmonary embolism is, who gets it, and what kind of symptoms usually present. Pulmonary embolism, or PE, as I might abbreviate it throughout the interview, is a blood clot lodged in the pulmonary arteries. They usually come from deep venous thrombosis that dislodges and travels through the right heart and into the lungs. When they lodge there, they cause usually shortness of breath or some degree of chest pain or chest discomfort. The importance in the emergency department setting is a little over half of all pulmonary emboli occur in the outpatient setting, so we see them in the emergency department if they survive to to get there. And pulmonary embolism is probably the second leading cause of sudden unexpected death behind myocardial infarction. Didn't realize it was that high. So obviously you guys in the ER are worried enough about this constantly and daily, so seems like you came up with some sort of algorithm or decision rule that kind of helps decide whether or not to go forward and get a CAT scan on these people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a compilation of eight clinical factors, things the doctor can gather at the bedside, really free of cost and without really essentially any invasive measures, doesn't even require a blood stick. And when we stack all of these things together, they forecast such a low probability of pulmonary embolism that it provides rationale for the doctor to not order a diagnostic test especially when the doctor's gut instinct is that a test is not necessary. So take us through some of the components of your decision rule, if you will. These are things that doctors use already, and my research really essentially just codified or or put some science around the reliability and, and precision of these elements at ruling out pulmonary embolism. The first is age less than 50, No matter what database, epidemiological study, or clinical trial that you look at, age is an independent risk factor for pulmonary embolism. So so youth is actually protective. So the rule starts with age less than 50. Pulmonary embolism causes a fast heart rate in about half of patients. So the rule specifies the patient's heart rate needs to be less than 100. Many times pulmonary embolism distorts blood flow in the lung enough to cause a low pulse oximetry reading. Pulse oximetry is a good screening tool at the bedside, screening tool, not diagnostic tool. So the rule requires a pulse oximetry reading with the patient breathing room air greater than 94%, that's 95% or above. Then it also requires no history of coughing up blood, no hemoptysis. It requires no prior history of PE or DVT, deep venous thrombosis, no recent surgery, that means within the last four weeks, or trauma requiring hospitalization. And on physical examination, 
no evidence of unilateral leg swelling. Uh, that's a very simplified way of saying there's no gross physical evidence of a deep venous thrombosis, and that's simply done by looking at the patient's calves and asking whether or not they look symmetrical. The answer is no, then the patient has unilateral leg swelling. So that has to be absent. There has to be symmetric calves. Really, it sounds like a good history and physical can save an unnecessary CAT scan. Yeah, it's a way of putting together what we pretty much do already, maybe hit or miss. Maybe we don't aren't quite this methodical. But in this work, I've put together a, a 13 hospital consortium that went out and tested this rule. And we showed that it worked very well. And, and with that as evidence, it will help provide some motivation and, and reason for doctors to carry a card around to remember these elements and, and document them on the chart and then have rationale for not ordering a diagnostic test. And, and a great deal of the motivation for this came from my experience with uh, medical malpractice cases involving uh, pulmonary embolism. Can you tell me a little bit more about the study? How many patients were in it? And were there false positives, false negatives? What, what kind of happened? This is a study that was funded by the National Institutes of Health through heart, lung, and blood. And it took over all about five years to do. It started with building the data collection tool, which was a web-based online form. That was one of the innovations in the study was we built this form, programmed in, in PHP, and it had a number of side server options where the physician could input the data at the bedside or near the bedside on a computer. And this data form would not allow any missing data or nonsensical data, so it wouldn't allow you to put a patient in who was 88 feet tall or who weighed 14 pounds. It set parameters and said, are you sure the patient weighed this much? So that method gave us real-time, high-quality data. Most importantly, it captured the beliefs of the physician ordering the test, unlike many studies where a research coordinator goes into the setting and collects data. This one did it from the doctor at the bedside. We then collected data at 13 hospitals, one in New Zealand as well, 12 across the United States in rural and urban settings, as well as in community and academic urban hospitals. The final data set was 8,138 patients. And these were ER patients evaluated for pulmonary embolism. They had a test order. Not all of them had pulmonary embolism. In fact, one of the questions we had was, what's the underlying number that end up with the disease of interest? And it turned out it was 6.9%, about 560, I believe, of the 8,000 had the actual outcome of venous thromboembolism based on standardized testing as well as a 45-day follow-up. When we apply the PERC rule to this population, we find that about a fourth of them, a fourth of the 8,138, were PERC negative, meaning it allowed the opportunity to exclude the disease. And out of those PERC negative patients, less than 1% of them ended up having venous thromboembolism or the outcome of death. If you've just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Casco, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jeffrey Klein, Research Director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. We're talking about a rule-out criteria for pulmonary embolism. 
Dr. Klein, it sounds pretty good that you saved a lot of money, actually, in unnecessary tests if you were able to cut it down by by a fourth. 2,000 CAT scans uh, adds up to a lot of money. Yes, it does, and a lot of radiation and exposure to contrast material. And let me just say in clarity that not all of those patients had a CT scan. About half of them had only a D-dimer ordered. So out of the ones that were PERC negative, out of the quarter that was PERC negative, about half of them had a CT angiography performed. But that's still a lot of healthy patients getting an expensive test that has a considerable amount of radiation takes a lot of time to do, and they also receive a contrast load with it. And out of the half of the quarter, in other words, an eighth of the entire 8,000 cohort, the CT scan showed no actionable diagnosis in PERC-negative patients. So it was really a scan that, that didn't even show us an alternative diagnosis that the doctor could act on. It was really a scan that wasn't needed. You mentioned the use of D-dimer, and I'm curious, how much is that being used in the emergency room, and is that being kind of sufficient? If you get a negative D-dimer, are you done, or are you still going ahead and getting the CAT scan and the D-dimer was just ordered because it's just routine? The concept of parallel testing is what you're, what you're getting at there. The test is ordered, and whether it's negative or positive, the CT scan is done anyway. That happens. It's only about 10% of all cases of D-dimer where the doctor doesn't rely on it. A larger and larger body of literature shows that a negative quantitative D-dimer in a non-high probability patient can exclude disease. It's a big part of the reason for the study is the D-dimer is now really become entrenched in United States emergency departments as well as in Europe, and it's being used as a ubiquitous screening tool. So if a doctor goes in, you know, we're overcrowded, we've got too many patients in the emergency department, and we're worried about missing this potentially fatal disease. So you check a bunch of boxes, including the cardiac markers and the D-dimer. And D-dimer comes back positive, which it often does in older patients and patients with comorbidity, then you're stuck. You've got to do a CT scan. So what I'm trying to do with the PERC rule is to give the doctor some cover so he doesn't have to check that D-dimer test on every patient that has any cardiopulmonary complaint at all. Well, you're talking about cover, and I assume you're alluding to covering, basically, for not getting sued, because that's really what this is about, doctors getting sued for not ordering the correct diagnostic test. So how do you get rid of the, the fear of the threat versus the actual threat? Great point. I'm going to start by saying the most important thing is that the rule is safe for our patients and that we never use a rule that is less safe than the diagnostic test. We'll never do something just to protect the doctor. But there is a great deal of motivation that is stemming from the fear of medical malpractice. We don't even know if it's real or not. If you actually look at the numbers, it's, it's more fear than reality. But a survey done by the Harris Polling Agency, as well as research done by Studdert et al., uh, S-T-U-D-D-E-R-T out of Harvard, has found that about 85% of emergency physicians indicate that on each shift they order a test that they don't think is medically necessary because of fear of medical malpractice. I think the best way to get to help mitigate this over-testing in response to fear of medical malpractice is to provide some rules of engagement where there's really no negligence as 
documented by meeting a threshold below which diagnostic testing is not needed. That threshold is a percent probability of the outcome of the disease that could threaten the patient's life. We're not going to drive the probability down to zero, but we can drive it down below a certain point where diagnostic testing makes no sense. And we can do that with just criteria we collect at the bedside. Where can a physician kind of find more about your PERC rule if they want to start using it in their ERs? The derivation paper was published in the Journal of Thrombosis Hemostasis in uh, 2007. I'm Klein, K-L-I-N-E-J-A, and if you just stick that in Google with P-E-R-C, you'll find it right away. That's probably the simplest way to say it on the radio. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Klein. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and thanks for listening.